From the Allen Slate Radio Institute at the Faculty of Communication and Design, this is the Ryerson Today podcast, where we look at the people, ideas, and culture of Ryerson University. You can also hear it on CJRU 1280 AM. I'm Will Sloan for Ryerson Today. In 2012, Felipe Misete Leite embarked on an incredible journey. He traveled 10,000 miles from Canada to Brazil crossing 10 countries over 800 days, riding two horses, and lived to tell the tale. His book, Long Ride Home, is available on Amazon, and its Brazilian language version has been optioned for a movie. Born in Brazil and based in Toronto, Leite is a 2011 Ryerson Journalism graduate, and he's back on campus today. Welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on. I'm going to start with the obvious question that I'm sure you're asked every time anybody asks you about this. What compels somebody to go on a journey like this? Uh, what compels a person to go on a journey like this? A good question. It was my life's dream. Uh, I honestly feel as if I was born to do this. Like everything I did in my life got me to the point where either I rode those horses back to Brazil or I did nothing. You know, like every cell in my body huh. was telling me to do this. Uh, my name is Felipe because it means a friend of horses. My dad had me on horseback before I could walk with my own legs. And uh, when I was a little kid, he used to tell me a story that changed my life, Aim Chifley story, a Swedish school teacher who in 1925 rode horseback from Buenos Aires, Argentina, all the way to New York in the United States. And uh, that's the story of my life. I spent my entire existence imagining what it would be like to travel on horseback and later ended up uh, studying journalism in Toronto and saw this as a tremendous opportunity to tell a reality of the Americas that a lot of people don't know because when you travel on horseback, it's four kilometers an hour, 30 kilometers a day. Uh, you need help every day, so you stay in people's homes and saw an opportunity as a journalist to not only live the dream, but create a project out of it. I know this has been lingering for a while, but was there a moment when there was a decisive decision like, damn it, I'm going to make this trip? Yeah, 100%, man. Uh, it was always such an internal thing, you know, like I daydreamed about it, I I dreamed about it at night, but one day I was still at Ryerson, I think it was in my second year of journalism, I went on the internet and I was like... I wonder if there's still people doing this because 1925 to now is a completely different world with already the seed of thinking, maybe I should ride back to Brazil and found a website called the Long Riders Guild, which they ended up helping me out so much to plan my journey. And what they do is they organize everybody that's ever gone on a long ride. So you got to ride more than 1,200 kilometers continuously. And we're talking about Marco Polo, Charles Darwin, Aim Chifley, myself, and other people around the world that were doing this right now. So I started seeing people that were traveling in Russia and in South America and in the US. And at that moment, it became real. And then I knew I needed to put it out to the universe. So I went on my Facebook, I posted on my wall, I'm going to ride a horse back to Brazil. And at that moment, I had released it to the universe and I just had to do it. The fact that people do this, there must be some appeal of like disconnecting from social media or freeing yourself from the normal day-to-day obligations that we all have, you know? Yeah, man, it's uh, it's a really beautiful way to live your life for a couple months or a couple weeks or a couple years. You know, in the 21st century, it seems like we are slowly entering our iPhones and our computers and we can't forget we're humans and we've lived a very natural life for a long time. And now just recently, we are emulating machines. And I feel like a lot of times there's, 
human desire and uh, something deep within our core that needs that kind of natural way of life, of survival, looking for water, uh, living with animals and having animals be a part of your life, getting wet when it rains, being cold when it's cold, you know what I mean? Uh, not having air conditioning all day or heat or, or all these things we, we've created in, in our lives to be comfortable, uh, but at the same time going completely against what humanity has, the way they've lived for so long. And, and when, like I said, when you're traveling on horseback, it's four kilometers an hour. So you can imagine what that's like. That's a walking pace of a human, only 30 kilometers a day. So if you're going from here to Bolton, Ontario, as an example, it might take you two days to get there, what you can do in a car in 40 minutes. And you're elevated because you're higher on top of a horse so you can see everything around you and there's no engine, so there's no noise. So you literally see every pebble on the road, every mountain, you see animals, you meet a lot of different people. It's a, it's a really beautiful way to, to live your life. Could you walk me through the route? Yes. So uh, I started in Calgary, Alberta, uh, July 8, 2012, a very hot July 8, and uh, rode to the Montana border. It took me a month to get there, across Montana, Wyoming, uh, went in through Yellowstone National Park, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Texas. From Texas, I entered the Chihuahua Desert, which was like just crazy, man. I, I still can't believe I survived. <laughs> Seven days through the desert before I got to the first town, a desert that is full of drug lords like, <laughs> and nothing else. And then from across all of Mexico, it was in Mexico for seven months. So I got to Guatemala, and then I did uh, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica. Couldn't get into Panama. Borders is a huge problem uh, with horses. I crossed a lot of them illegally. I'd befriend the local drug lords, and they would cross me uh, right next to the real border uh, where they, whatever, cross guns, cocaine, whatever you want. And then when I got to Panama, it's Miami, and I uh, got barred. They didn't let my horses enter. A huge problem arose. I thought I was going to have to leave my kids behind, like my horses are my children at this point had been like a year and something I'd be traveling with them and that was never an option. So had to uh, find $30,000 from sponsors. And uh, two months later I flew these horses to Lima, Peru, which was the only country I was able to enter. And then I rode from Lima to Bolivia and then from Bolivia to the Brazilian border. And then three months later, uh, finished the ride in the largest rodeo in Latin America. A recurring theme in the book is the kindness of strangers. Were people mostly nice to you? Oh my God, man. Everyone was nice to me. Uh, on a journey like this, you figure out that 99.9% of people are amazing. Uh, you see the true spirit of humanity. I needed help every single day, 30 kilometers a day for 16,000 kilometers, 803 days on the road. And every single day, I mean, sometimes I'd be in a mountain for five days without seeing a human being, but where there were people, man, like they just wanted to give you whatever they had. They wanted to help even sometimes the worst of the worst, like this drug Lord, uh, helped me. I was at his house for three days, treated me like his child and kept me safe. There was a, a family in, in Guatemala that had one chicken. They butchered the chicken to feed me like a very simple family. So you get to stay with people that have a lot and people that have nothing. You get to stay with people that are white, you know, all different colors, all different religions, all different socioeconomic backgrounds. And you, you begin to understand when you're sitting at a dinner table with these people on a regular Wednesday night that everyone is the same. We're all inherently the same. Uh, we're looking for the same things for love. We want to be loved. We want the best for our family and our children. Children, and the people were good. The people were very, very good. Did you anticipate it would take two years? Yes, I knew it would take somewhere between two years, three years, but the universe just conspired in my, you know, for me so much because I ended up, I had to get to that rodeo, which had a date 
and uh, somehow, some way, with bureaucracy and gunshots and horses getting hurt and everything else I had to go through, I rode the final 10 kilometers to get into that rodeo uh, where there was 40,000 people waiting for me. And actually, like, I rode in. Like, I, I, I got there right on time, so it's crazy. Did you ever fear for your life? <laughs> Every day. Uh, yeah, man. A huge problem on the long riding in the 21st century is roads and cars. Like uh, horses are prey animals. So every instinct they have is there's a bear trying to eat me. So a little plastic bag flying on the side of the road may scare them enough to take off running. And uh, when they take off running, you may cross a highway where there's trucks zooming by you at 120 kilometers an hour. Uh, so very, very scary. We met a grizzly bear in Montana. Uh, I saw two people shot dead in Central America. In Honduras, I uh, saw a guy trying to kill his wife with five shots, and I was the only person staying at his house at the time, so I thought he was going to kill me. That was a horrible night. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, man, a lot of... Uh, but that's that's what it's all about, man. That's, that's human. That's human, 101. It's great to push your boundaries. It's great to realize your limits are much further than you ever imagined. And uh, that's what you do on this journey every single day, physically and mentally. Did you have friends and family who ever tried to talk you out of it or were worried about you? Yes. Family, no, but because the story has been so engraved in our family. Like this was my dad's dream. His dad told him the story when he was a kid. My dad wanted to do this and uh, just never did it because he got married young and and uh, whatnot. I always say he just didn't have the guts to do it, but uh, <laughs> life happened. And then he told me the story when I was very young. So it's been a very gradual thing. Like I said, it's just, it's the only thing I could do. My mom was very worried, but uh, what a beautiful selfless woman. She always supported me from day one. You got to remember, I didn't have anything to do this. I was a Ryerson, broke Ryerson student. I used to work at the Ram and the Rye. I used to work at another job. And at night, I used to work on the project. And I spent two years looking for sponsorship. No one knocked on my door and said, you want to do this. Uh, sent letters to every production company in the world until finally through Twitter, a production company out of Nashville, they own the Lonely Planet, bought the project and said, all right, we believe in you. The horses were given to me. So the hardest part wasn't actually convincing people that I would make it. Once I left, the hardest part was convincing people that I was going to leave mm. because for those two years I was living at Queen Street broke, trying to find the money to make this happen. So I had tons of friends that were like, what are you doing, man? You could just be working with the CBC or, or the Toronto Star. Like, why, why are you doing this? It's going to be so dangerous. You're going to look like a lunatic if you don't even leave. Like you're telling people you're, you're going to do this. You don't have a penny to do this. But I just always believed, man, and I've learned from this journey that uh, if you want something badly enough, the universe will conspire in your favor. I guess people would have kind of like followed along on your journey, right? Yeah, uh, for sure. Did, was there a cognitive dissonance to that? Were you able to put that out of your mind while you were on it? Yeah, I mean, I was and I wasn't. Like, as as much as I was uh, really far away from all these people I loved and this, these people that were now following the journey, that energy helped me out a lot. Like when I'd get to a town and, and open my Instagram or my Facebook through social media, I was able to not only tell the story in real time, but uh, get the positive energy from people. Like, come on, Felipe, you can do this. How mm -hmm. are you? Like once something bad happened, like one of my horses got hit by a truck in Mexico. Luckily he survived. We spent a month with him and, and he finished the trip. But like when that happened, it's a really hard part of the journey, right? You're down, you're by yourself in Southern Mexico. It's 50 million degrees. There's people getting shot all around you. And now you have a horse that you don't know what's going to happen to him. And uh, to be able to have my family and friends and, and people following me, you know, send me messages and talk to me. That gives you a lot of power to continue on.
What were some of your favorite countries? Uh, that's a really tough question. Mexico stands out uh, because the Mexican people are crazy. Like six in the morning, they're drinking tequila and like shooting their guns off into the sky. Sounds and, like... just like me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, and they're so nice and, and they love the horse. Uh, no country celebrated my journey like Mexico. In the 21st century, it's just so hard being a cowboy and riding horses because people are just so detached from that world. And a lot of people don't understand it. A lot of people think you're hurting the horse. Like a lot of people think it's animal cruelty and they don't realize there's a whole, you know, love relationship, this beautiful relationship between man and beast that exists with a horse. So the Mexicans still have that. And uh, there were days where there was one day a thousand people rode with me on horseback. Some days, 10 people, some days, seven, but no other country uh, celebrated my journey like this. But then again, every country I went through, I fell in love with it for a second or a month or, or, or longer. I crossed Yellowstone National Park. I left Calgary, Alberta and like the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, Central America and their beaches, Peru, Bolivia. Like I saw some really beautiful places, so it's hard to pick. I want to ask you about that bond between man and beast. Uh, yeah. How well did you know the horses before you started the trip? And was there an evolution in your relationship to the horses? Oh, 100%. I met these horses seven days before I left. And uh, Frenchie was a Bronco. No one had gone on him in like years. Huh. So the first time I try to work with him, he bucks me off. I break my finger, rip my pants. And I'm just like on the arena floor, just watching this horse buck like a rodeo horse. And I have seven days to leave from the largest rodeo in Canada with all the media there. Everyone's waiting for me to fail. <laughs> and there I was failing. So it was really hard. But uh, through hard work and uh, love, which I think is the main tool you can use to train a horse and get it to trust you. Frenchie realized that I wasn't going to hurt him and, uh, you know, I wanted to love him and, and ride him. And, and it's a very, uh, long riding is a very natural thing for a horse to do because throughout time when these horses were uh, wild and they're still wild horses today, they would walk 30 to 40 kilometers daily to get food, to get water. And uh, what long riding does is that you naturally show this horse all kinds of things like bridges, cars, other horses, cities, mounds. So by the end of it, my horses had evolved so much mentally, physically, they look like beasts. They're so <laughs> beautiful and strong. And uh, our bond was just insane. Like I spent 24 hours a day with these guys. An example I give people is like halfway through the trip, anytime I stop to pee, and I started peeing, all the horses peed with me. <laughs> and that's the only way I can describe it. Like we were, we were our own little herd. They're my children. I love them to death. When I got to Brazil, I retired them. And uh, now they just drink uh, fresh water and eat green grass and do nothing else. Yeah. They're the uh, heroes. Notwithstanding that, was it a lonely trip? Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. It was a very lonely moment. It's tough. Yeah, silence is tough. Did you hear that silence yeah. for a sec? It's almost awkward, right? Silence. Yeah, Because yeah. we're so used to I always ask people this, and I will ask you this, and everyone listening to us at home. Uh, let's think about uh, this past year. Oh, no, let's think about last year because it's a full year. Did you spend one day without talking to someone? I don't think so, no. Right? Yeah. Maybe you were at home alone, but you had your phone, you were talking to people on yeah. Instagram or whatever. And uh, yeah, we don't spend time alone anymore. So to do it is really hard, but... You learn some beautiful lessons. Like today, I know who Felipe is because I've had that really hard talk that you don't have time to have. And and I would spend five days by myself. The first day you sing, second day you talk to your horses, the third day you don't say anything. <laughs> Fourth day you don't say anything. And it's just you and your thoughts and your life and your story and your your fears. 
and uh, you learn a lot about yourself. You you connect to nature and, and the universe and and you think, you think a lot. I think too much time alone is bad. I've talked to a lot of long riders who have like gone off the deep end <laughs> and uh, I've done other trips and now I will only do it with a support vehicle because uh, when I arrived in Brazil, like I was uh, in really bad shape. Like I was depressed, I had anxiety. Uh, I was having the same things that some soldiers have when they, you know, PTSD when you get back from war because it was a war and uh, I spent a lot of time alone. I just realized that if I kept doing this by myself, I wouldn't want to know who Felipe, you know, the crazy cat lady from the Simpsons. Yeah. yeah. I would have become the crazy, the crazy <laughs> horse guy. Uh, so yeah, it, it's good to be alone. And I think it's a, it's a huge, um, learning curve, but uh, too much time alone is dangerous. There's a lot of bad feeling right now in the United States. And you know, there's a lot of anxiety about the U S Mexican border. Did being on this trip offer you any, I guess, unique insight into these problems? You know, it's crazy because uh, it just, it showed me that these imaginary white lines drawn by white men way back when for no reason doesn't mean anything because from Colorado down, which used to be Mexican land until a Mexican president just gave it away for booze money, uh, <laughs> it's, been it's been taken back by the Mexicans. It's Mexico again. Every restaurant is Mexican. The music you listen to is Mexican. And the Latin presence is so strong. And then you get to like New Mexico and Texas, and it's Mexico. So I gradually feel like I went into Mexico. Because I was uh, riding on the side of the road, I got to break bread with a lot of these uh, families walking up from Central America to try to cross the desert to get to the U.S. And it's, oh, it's so sad, man. Like, you would see mom, dad with two kids walking for three months, facing so many different dangers to get to that desert, pay a coyote, not sure if they're going to survive the walk. And then you have these guys that are taking them hostage now once they get into Phoenix and those places. And then they hold them hostage and try to charge their family. And if they get caught by Trump's people now, their kids get separated. And it's just like, oh, man. And it just goes to show. It's just when you're there and you're speaking to them and you're learning their stories, you realize that nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to walk for three months with their kids and put them in this danger. They're doing this because they're so desperate, because they're so hungry, because their lives are so bad. And that's what we need to understand. You need to walk a mile or even you know, half a mile in someone else's shoes before you try to judge them and before you throw them in a cage. Like mm -hmm. We knew this was going to happen. This, this migration of, uh, of the third world to the first world is happening in Europe. We're seeing it happen. It's happening now in North America, and it was going to happen when you have these people with iPhones and, and boats and 10 houses. And then you have people just south of the border starving. Like, what did we think it was going to happen? So yeah, very sad, man. Like, uh, I just hope it gets resolved and who knows where this is going to end. But yeah. What happened to you after the trip ended? Yeah. Like I said, I just like my, I was in bad shape, like really bad shape. I've always been such a happy guy and, and I, I kept telling myself, like, I just, this is so hard, but I just, I need to get home. I need to get home. I need to get home. And then when I got home, I realized that, Oh my God, like, how do you go back into normal society after like going through all of this? And like, every time I went to a bar, you know, I, I'd be like talking to a girl, my friends would just come and be like, Oh, you'll never believe what Felipe did. Like he wrote, and I didn't want to be that guy. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to, 
I hated the story. I didn't feel like I had done anything that extraordinary, like, because it was very gradual for me. And, and these guys, like, build a statue of me, and, like, <laughs> everyone wants to take photos of me. And it's just, like, I had a really hard time. Like I said, PTSD is the closest thing after reading about it and realizing that I had gone through all of this. It's the closest thing I can explain to to what I was feeling. But so I spent a lot of time writing this this book, and I, I do a lot of motivational talks in Brazil. And I went to do a motivational talk at a cancer hospital for young kids and was very, uh, it, it hit me very hard because these kids are going through so much. Uh, some of them don't have legs, some of them don't have arms and all of them don't have hair. And, and yet they have a smile on their face and they're fighting with all their might and uh, left there. It's a, it's a hospital that doesn't charge anything. It's free for the kids. So they need to raise money and was like, wow, I need to do something to help. I need, what can I do? And I opened a map and was like, wow, it's 7,500 kilometers to get to Ushuaia, which is the end of the world. Patagonia and I was like that's what I'm gonna do I'm just gonna do another a second long ride and raise money for these kids and and I did it and uh, it was kind of like therapy it helped me get back to my happy self I needed to do the second trip to put my life back in order and I just finished that in July of last year how long was that trip uh, that took a year and three months through southern Brazil Uruguay and uh, Argentina I spent seven months in Patagonia which is like if heaven and hell could coexist in perfect harmony it'd be Patagonia it's the most beautiful place you've ever seen but like it's hard to breathe like it's hard to live winds of 120 kilometers an hour temperatures of like minus 20 I'd be like 20 days to get to the next town and it's just like a gas station and like three people there and then another 20 days to get to the next town just very long stretches of nothing but yeah it was a great trip very beautiful not as trauma no, because I had someone with me. I had a, a support vehicle for most of the time anyways, and uh, friends, different friends came and drove it for me. And the traumatizing part about the first trip is being alone, number one, and sometimes not having water or food for your horses because you're scared they're going to die and you're in the middle of nowhere. And these are your kids, right? Like you love them with all your heart. And it's like a mother that doesn't have the essentials to give her children. So that starts to eat away your head. You don't sleep. You're thinking about it. And now with a support vehicle, every night I have water and food for these, for these guys. And uh, so that takes a huge stress away. And I have someone to talk to, to be like, mm -hmm. what a crappy day. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world, having someone out there. You did the first trip, you know, right after graduating Ryerson. How did that journalism school experience influence, I guess, the trip and the book? I just wouldn't have uh, taken one single step if it wasn't for Ryerson, because uh, while I was here, I learned a lot with the professors and I love them to death and in the classroom, but I learned more outside of the classroom. At Ryerson, I figured out that if you create a project, people will give you money to make that happen. So before I graduated, I shot two international documentaries, one in Peru and one in Kenya, all paid by the president's office. I got Sony to give us the cameras. And that's what sparked this whole like, I don't need to work for the CBC or the Toronto Star or anybody else. Like I could just get someone to fund this and create my own job, which is a journalist on horseback. So that was already the, the first part of the help. The second part was creating this project. I learned how to pitch and, and how to create everything. And I, I shot two pilots before I even left to sell it. So when I got to this production company, I had the pilots, I had the sponsorship package, I had everything that I use the tools from here. I use the editing base here to edit these pilots. So it helped me so much. And then once I got the sponsorship and uh, I got this production company on board, I was there by myself. I was a one-man show, so I had to be producer. I had to be the sound guy. I had to be the camera guy. And I had to be the reporter. So uh, I feel like everything I learned here 
help me carry this project out. Like I, that's why I say like everything I did got me to that moment. Like had I not studied journalism and come to Ryerson, I don't think I've ever would have done this because I wouldn't be able to pay for the trip. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Finally, what can you say about the movie? Oh yeah, man, it's gonna be crazy. I'm so excited. So I just uh, the day before I flew to Canada, I fl I signed the contract with uh, the largest Brazilian production company. They've done some big box office uh, movies, and it's going to be a road movie shot in uh, BC and Alberta, Mexico and Brazil. It's going to be co-produced with a Canadian production company and a Mexican production company. And uh, yeah, it's going to be uh, hopefully a big, big movie that we're going to see in uh, some big festivals and hopefully it'll be a, in a theater near you in like three years. It's going to take a long time. But it's funny because when I was out there filming this myself and, and making this ride, I just knew, like I, I've always known the movie was going to be made because the story is crazy. It's beautiful. But I just imagine being like, oh, if there was a guy here that could climb that mountain <laughs> and film me swimming this river with these three horses, it'd be the most epic you know, footage ever. And if you could just say, yo, cut, do it again. So it's, it's going to be a beautiful movie. Like it's set in some of the most beautiful locations in the Americas. We got drug lords. We got gunshots. We got bears. We have the mass migration of people. We have the global warming that I saw firsthand. Every country I entered, the worst drought in a generation, the hottest year in the past hundred years. And uh, I suffered so much because you need so much water for these horses. So it's going to be a really telling story about the Americas in the 21st century and all the problems and all the great things we have, like the humanity I encountered along the way and the people that just passed me down from village to village. Well, Long Ride Home is available on Amazon. And uh, thanks for being here. Come back after your third ride. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. For Ryerson Today, I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. To find out more, please visit our podcast page at ryerson.ca slash news hyphen events. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or subscribe on iTunes. Please rate and review us on iTunes or contact us at ryersontoday at ryerson.ca with your feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter at RyersonU and Facebook. For more campus news, visit ryerson.ca. This podcast was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute at the RTA School of Media in the Faculty of Communication and Design.